Welcome to Clap with Jane with Jane Clap. I know some of the most interesting and inspiring people who are helping to keep humanity afloat in their own unique ways. I want you to meet them too. I wish to acknowledge the land on which I operate. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Hi, folks. Welcome to Clap with Jane. I'm so honored and excited to share that Prentice Hemphill is um, our guest today. Prentice, they, them, is a Texas-born embodiment practitioner, therapist, writer, and the founder of the Embodiment Institute and Black Embodiment Initiative. For the past 15 years, Prentice has been unearthing the connections between individual healing, community accountability, and our most inspired visions for social transformation. Before founding the Embodiment Institute, Prentice was the Healing Justice Director at Black Lives Matter Global Network, co-founding partner of organizational consulting firm, Groundwork Project, and has been a teacher of somatics with generative somatics and Black organizing for leadership and dignity for nearly 10 years. In 2016, Prentice was awarded the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Soma Award for community work inspired by Buddhist thought. Um, they've been featured in the New York Times, Huffington Post. Um, they've been a contributor with the, the Politics of Trauma by Stacey C. Haynes. And more and more, I, Prentice's remark is remarkable um, and such a grounding force in these times. And so here's our conversation. Enjoy. And I was just saying before we were recording that I was nervous, like what, what for, and how difficult it can be to like listen back to ourselves, even um, Prentice talking about their podcast as well. Um, but welcome so much. Thank you. I'm so honored you're here. Thank you, Jane. It's really nice to be here. I feel really excited to be in conversation with you. Nice. You were um, mentioning uh, about your farm and having lots of dogs on your farm. I'm yes. a dog lover. I can barely handle my dog, um, one dog. Um, but this summer you found yourself living with like a large number of puppies. And I love seeing your videos and you've found homes for them. I mean, how much work um, was all of that? And what lessons, like what lessons did your puppy pandemic experience teach you? You know, I could have posted hundreds of videos and pictures about that time in our lives. And I think I only posted maybe five or six, but I'm like, I could have. There was just so much happening in our house when we had those puppies that I'm like, I could have just <laughs> given people so much puppy content. Um, it was like... A completely transformative and very unexpected experience. My dog, we'd gotten a dog to be a companion to the pit bull we've had for 
10 years. And uh, we got her just before the pandemic hit, like a month before we were supposed to stay at home. So we didn't get her, we didn't get any surgeries performed on her. Um, and she ended up getting pregnant pretty immediately, <laughs> or I guess probably uh, six months in she got, she got pregnant and had 11 puppies. That's a lot of puppies for one litter, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, it's very much on the high end. I, that morning when she was about to give birth, I was, I was saying it's only probably three puppies. I was like feeling around in her stomach and I'm, I think there's three puppies in here. And when she started delivering, we got to three and she didn't look any different. And I was like, wait a minute. And puppies just kept coming out all day till we got to 11. We were, this has to be a record. Um, had 11 puppies. And I think what I learned in that, uh, two things that feel really significant to me. And one is like, one, they just have such distinct personalities. I think I wasn't expecting that. I, seeing both the way elements of her appear in them, little traits or little habits or things like that, but also just the little variations on a theme that you see when there's 11 puppies. You're like, oh, this one is sassy. Oh, this one is grumpy, but it's like related to that sassiness. You can just see this like spread of personality. Um, the thing that I really learned though about myself was I was so reluctant to attach to them. Mm. I was really nervous about it because it felt like there were 11 new lives and I wanted to just, my heart just immediately swelled and I wanted to like love them all, but I was afraid because they were so tiny, so delicate. And I didn't know if they all were going to survive. And one of them was very, very small and she kept abandoning it in the hallway or under the bed. And we had to feed it milk in a bottle because she wouldn't feed that one. And that one survived and lives in California now. But um, I found myself, my, I kept, every time I'd come in, I'd count to make sure they're 11. I built the box that they were born in and kind of grew up in the whelping box. And I made sure that all the logistics were taken care of, but I felt really guarded in my heart. And I was really surprised by that. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of work to open it up to 11 new, really delicate lives, but they were so much joy. I mean, it was just, it was more cuteness than I can even convey to you. We would let them out when they got bigger to run around on the land that we live on. And just imagine like a flood of 11 puppies enjoying grass for the first time. It was incredible. It was a gift. Yeah. Like um, my friend Annie Boudreaux calls it like glimmers, like going glimmer hunting. But when mm. there's a puppy right in front of you, it's just... It's just all day, right? Although you, or you go from like, oh my gosh, you're driving me crazy to I can't stand how much I love you. It's all day, all day, all day. And imagine trying to like work and keep your house clean. And there's 11 puppies just destructive and adorable constantly. It was amazing. 
amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, puppy, like everybody's getting puppies in my area now. Yeah. And I'm just, every time I see someone with a brand new puppy, I'm like, oh, I feel for you so much. <laughs> Yo, it's not easy. It's not easy. And, you know, we thought, okay, we got 11 puppies. Where are we going to, where are 11 puppies going to live? People had claimed those puppies. We had a waiting list for the puppies. People drove from California to come get the puppies. Like it was intense. Shelters are low on puppies. Some of them are empty because people want that companionship so much now. So the puppies all found homes. But then there was this period of time probably um, where the puppies are, you know, I think they all moved when they were couple months old, few months old, few months old. But there was this period where all of the new puppy parents were experiencing puppies chewing on things, not wanting to learn how to go to the bathroom outside, <laughs> not sleeping through the night. Everybody was kind of simultaneously having that, why did I get a puppy experience? Yeah. Yeah. The idealization of like a companion and then facing the reality of it is just a whole nother level. Yeah. Reality. And the trust building you have to do, you know, with each other. They have to trust you. You have to learn to trust them. And that's how the relationship gets built, actually. What was it like when you had to give them to their new homes? Um, it was really hard. I think the first round was really hard. First three went and there were a lot of tears. There were a lot of tears. Um, it got, I guess, easier or maybe you're just kind of like mid heartbreak as you go through 11. One of them still lives here at this house and one of them lives across the street and he comes over every day. Oh. to play with the mom and the brother so um that's very sweet i you know i thought okay they're gonna grow up and kind of go their separate ways soon as he gets let out in the morning he runs over here and he basically knocks on the door and he asks for them to come out and they run around and play for a couple hours oh my god you're killing me <laughs> it's very cute <laughs> very i was cute. meditating this morning and i looked over and my dogs like had come up behind on the couch behind me and just had put her like head like right almost resting on my shoulder and I I'm just been so much more grateful for for her consciously grateful for her and um she just does so much for me and my family you now at home so yeah I love that yeah, yeah. amazing yeah <laughs> um Moving out of puppy land because I could stay there for too long and I'm going to move us along. Um, you recently announced a new project, the Embodiment Institute, um, mm -hmm. where you describe it as expanding embodied learning and relational transformation skills to broaden our community, community's capacity um, and practice of just relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what inspired you to set that up? What inspired me was, uh, I have been 
studying and practicing and sometimes teaching around transformative justice principles for a while now. And it feels like the conversation around transformative justice, uh, abolishing prisons and all the harmful systems that incarcerate and disappear and um, kill people um, are being exposed and the conversation is being, uh, there's just a, uh, a larger group of people having a conversation that once upon a time uh, felt like only pockets, small pockets of people were talking about, at least in this, this moment in time. Um, and for me, as someone that deeply believes in uh, abolishing the prison system, I am also someone who facilitates conflict processes, uh, transformative justice processes. I also know that there's so much relational skill and practice we need to support the liberatory vision that abolition offers us. And that has really been how I got to the work of healing justice or healing, becoming a practitioner at all was through this vision of how do we make systems like this obsolete? What will it take? What will it take in our institutions? What kind of institutions do we create instead? What does it mean for our communities and how we engage and relate to one another? What does it mean for our relationships? Uh, so that prisons no longer make sense. So that in some ways that sits underneath um, as a, a guiding light for me. What is it that we need to be in practice around so that you and I can intervene, so that you and I reduce our reliance on violence and harm of one another, so that we repair when it's time to? Um, how do we do that, not just from an intellectual space, but what comes up in our bodies? You know, and those are really. Uh, charged experiences or charged moments where we've been hurt or where we have harmed or um, all of these things, where we've been, how do we heal from being sent away from community? You know, the way prisons take people away. There's so much charge and rupture there. How do we actually viscerally um, move through what comes up in all of these experiences so that we can both heal from the generational pain of incarceration and state-sanctioned violence against communities? And how do we ongoingly create the kinds of relationships that, that um, do away with the, the practices and values inside of those systems? So that's really why. I don't say that so much on the website, but that's really the question that's guiding me is, how do we do that? And so I wanted to create this project as a way to practice relational skills in an embodied way that I feel support our ability to respond to 
the real things that come up when people live together and in proximity with one another. I think the other piece is that um, I think embodiment is one way that we can awaken to our interdependence and interconnection with each other and the all the other non-human um, life around us. And um, I really want, I think that that's really critical for all of us in this day and age, in this moment, um, but also with all the ways that we've been objectified by the system to, to re-inhabit ourselves as organic beings and to relate to other organic material around us in a way that is just inviting of life. Um, I feel excited about what that means about how we then structure our lives, the world, society, all those things. So um, that's what I want to do in the project. <laughs> and um, there's a Black Embodiment Initiative is our first kind of central project, which is a, about creating spaces for Black people uh, in the U.S. in particular to engage in that kind of learning. And embodiment to you, I mean, what does embodiment mean to you? Yeah, I, I, uh, it was important for me, I'll just say, to, I feel myself moving away from the word somatics, though it's where I come from and I relate to it. It's where I come from to a degree. And I relate to it. But for me, it feels like embodiment speaks more to the processes. Um, points. It's, it feels, somatics feel so obscure to me sometimes. And I tell people I do somatics, they're like, what? How do I even enter into that? Um, so embodiment, I think it, it gives a little bit of the texture, I think, of what we're often talking about. For me, it's about having a felt sense of our lives and all the things that allow us to feel our liveness and feel our lives. And it can look like you know, what we call somatics or embodiment work is just vast. Mm -hmm. Like we were talking before we got on the podcast about kind of what you focus on inside of somatics. And I would say I have overlapping in different areas where I focus. And there's other people that have, you know, overlapping in different areas of focus. There's so much in there because what we're talking about is the experience and the awareness and the consciousness around our lives and being alive. And that to me relates to what the body does. It relates to what bodies do together, how we build culture, how we move and perceive. There's so much inside of there um, that I think relates to embodiment. But for me, that's what it is. And I like to keep it broad because then I get to play. For me, like when I hear somatics, I just hear like, okay, well, I'm going to be more conscious in my body. And but when I hear embodiment, I hear an intention to embody something. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like I when I hear that. embodiment, I'm like, there's like an intentionality behind it that you're trying to embody something. And yeah. that's sort of what I hear and what you're saying in your, your demarcation from somatics to embodiment. Yeah? Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I think I understand. And yeah, I, I uh, the word somatics is used so much nowadays that, you know, in the wellness world, I think words so quickly lose meaning. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, mm. um, in the Ask Me Anything episode of your podcast, um, Finding Our Way, you talked a bit about somatics as the embodied wisdom and culture. And you said, mm-hmm. we've not been taught to look at our own practices as knowledge, as wisdom. We're not always trained to look at the little morsels of truth that have been passed down through the subtlest of movements and motions. Mm-hmm. And like for people who aren't familiar with embodiment or somatics, like what do those morsels look like and how do we reclaim them? Like as our own wisdom. Just a small question for a short podcast. <laughs> um, maybe I'll tell it in story, mm-hmm. which is um, every Saturday morning when I was a kid, uh, my mom and my dad would put on a record and we would dance and clean the house. And sometimes we'd just dance through the house. You know what I mean? And it was a reset time. It was a connection time. It was a play time for all of us. We put on something that, oh, we got this new record. We put the record on. Oh, that's my jam. Okay, you got to find it on the got to find it on the record, you know, aging myself, that's fine. Find it on the record, find the groove, get it just right. So you don't start into the song, you don't start in the last song and you dance and you groove. And um, to me, that, that was a collective embodiment practice for us. And I don't think it has to be, well, one, I will say, I think what colonization has done for many of us is that the things that we do together or the things that we do that feel uniquely ours, we feel shame around or feel like it's extracurricular or side or not central to how we relate to one another, how we build relationship or build meaning. I know that in the quote unquote somatics world, there's people that do kind of the neurobiology of somatics. And then there's people that do dance and movement and those worlds can feel so separated. Oh yeah. And I think that that has, well, I'll just say this. I know when I was training for somatics, there would be moments where, or even teaching in my early days of teaching, at the end of a a day teaching, folks would say, Oh, can you put on a song and maybe see if people want to dance? Mm-hmm. And dance was such a side element of what it meant to be embodied. And I thought, you know, it started to occur to me that this was the way I kind of always been taught that dance and black dance in particular, you just add on, you put on a, a song that everybody wants to hear and then you dance and get everybody to dance. And it's, it's a, it's an add on. Mm-hmm. And not a, not one of our first quote unquote somatic practices is dance. Yeah. One of the first embodiment practices human beings ever had was dancing together, finding a beat, creating the beat, dancing together. Why? Because there's so much that can be synchronized with the beat, with movement. There's so much that can be expressed through moving your body. And we've been taught that that is 
it it doesn't matter. It's not real. It should be done only in the dark in a club. You know, there's not meaning. They can't be sacred. Especially certain people's dances can't be sacred. And that has a lot to do with the way oppression gets set up. Who gets whose practices are sacred and whose are not. Mm. So it's like it's there for me. And I think part of our work in shaking up what is a wellness world or healing world, shaking up what is a political world, because I think the political world has a lot to understand about embodiment and about culture and how change happens at those sites. But I I think that it's um, important to understand that when we create a liberatory vision for the world, we also decide in some ways what's sacred, Mm -hmm. what has meaning. And the, the small things that we do at home with each other that restore us, that connect us, that have us feel, that have us express something that we hadn't expressed before, why isn't that sacred? Mm-hmm. Why isn't that the center of what's important to do? So um, I don't know what it looks like for everybody's life, but that's what it looks like for mine, paying attention to how did my grandmother touch me? Mm. You know, what, what did we do in our time together? What, seeing my grandmother pray, even if it's not exactly my same religious practice, but seeing her kneel, go inward, you know, that there's meaning there. There's something to understand there that, um, I think I know personally, I've been encouraged to dismiss, mm. but has been central to, you know, how we feel, process, and survive. Do you feel like the shifting focus in somatics towards the sacred is a key aspect of decolonization then? That a lot of the science is just describing what we've known that that many cultures have known all along and we're just putting structure and models onto that? I think there's two things in your question to me. One is that somatics has always, as long as it's been a field, it's decided that some things are sacred. And maybe, maybe the more precise thing is that somatics is a field has always engaged in colonization and romanticization <laughs> in cultural appropriation. It's done all of those things because it, it, is a, it is a frame that emerges from a colonial perspective. Somatics doesn't exist as a field without colonization. Embodiment exists, or the experience rather, pre-name of living in our bodies and returning to the to the resource of our bodies that exists. But somatics is, um, is helpful to a degree for me. I mean, it definitely has impacted and recovered parts of me. And it only exists the way that it does in a colonial context, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, the work in this field, if we can call it that, this field of work that we're in, um, is 
Yeah, I think that it's related to identifying what is sacred, what is just, um, and that without those interrogations, we are recreating harmful practices. There's another part of your question, and I'm trying to remember (laughs) what I was going to say to it. And it has escaped me, which happens. But if it comes back to me, I will bring it up. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, please visit my Patreon page in the show notes. 20% of your proceeds each month will be going to a different organization fighting racism and providing legal support either inside or outside Canada. And 20% of your proceeds will be going to Doctors Without Borders. At $20 per month, you could become a VIP patron and get access to my weekly conscious body sessions. I present embodied spiritual and depth psychology-based reflections from my own journey with movement and mindfulness tools intended to help you access your innate resilience and the strength of your human heart. Do you think if people are given permission and guided into connecting with, with what is sacred, in them and for them that were that there's a greater likelihood of doing less harm to one another i'm pausing because i don't mean to say that there is nothing sacred now i think there are things that are sacred now i don't think that they represent um I, what I mean to say is, is that I, I was looking at something that uh, Priya Parker was writing about the other day, and she wrote the book, The Art of Gathering. And she said something about how what we saw at the Capitol was people interrupting um, or destroying, rather, the symbols of the state and feeling entitled to do that. I don't know if I'm paraphrasing her well, but that's partly what I've been meditating on after that, is that there are concepts, ideas, private property as one. There are things that are sacred in this current logic that we are in. I don't know if sacred is the right word there, but I think it's important for us to be involved in the making of what is sacred because it guides um, what we do, how we do it, who we protect, how we protect them. I think those things are guides. Um, So I, yeah, I, I hope I'm not contradicting myself from earlier, but I think what I'm saying is that in the system that we're in, there are things that it holds dear. There are reasons why it moves the way it does. It has an embodiment even. But what, I think like you mentioned earlier, what do we choose now? What do we choose now with what we know now, with what we can understand now, with what we can feel now, what do we choose? And it's not, 
inevitable that we'll choose more life or justice or each other. Um, but it is possible. And I think we have to be engaged in the making of that and not allowing others to decide for us in such a global way what is sacred. Thank you. Yeah. Um, your recent post for the Embodiment Institute said, we know that our relationships with each other are the foundation for the change work we do. And to strengthen our bonds, we have to engage in trauma healing and resilience building in our physiology and through practice to live out these bold visions for independence, for the abolition of harmful systems. We have to develop embodied and emotional capacities that reinforce these visions and make them possible. Um, can you like? Can you speak about the link between personal embodiment and how it can help us dismantle systems of oppression? Yeah, and I, I think it's um, especially important in the work that I'm trying to do that we also understand the relational aspects of that because our, our individual, our personal embodiment um, is expressed relationally. And I mean relational broadly, a relation with the place that we, where we live. What's our relationship to that place, to the soil that we're on? Is there uh, giving or just taking? Is there any semblance of reciprocity there? The relationships with all the life around us, what, what do we know about it? How do we engage with it? the people around us? So for me, I think it's important to, in some ways, understand, yes, we can engage in our individual healing work. We, I highly recommend it. <laughs> and it, it is expressed and it is tested relationally. Oh yeah, it, had, it gets its meaning through relationships. So I think the bridge then is very easy to how that impacts um, systemic oppression. Um, if we know that it's not just about I'm going to get a real, I'm going to get in a real good place, just me, just me, Prentice. I'm going to feel real good. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> You know, there's there's people I'm in relationship with. There's there's land that I'm in relationship with. There's animals I'm in relationship with. There's ancestors I'm in relationship with. So it's not only that I can get real good in myself. It it's a it's a flow of energy, so to speak. So, um, but I guess the last thing I'll say is that. What, what, what it is that we do is an expression of a logic that we have or belief that we have. And that's just what, and it may be contradictory beliefs that we hold or values that we hold inside of ourselves, but what I do and how I express and what I do is it, it, it stems from uh, a logic. And I, I think 
for many of us, we've been so trained up in systems or ways of being or identities that may not relate to how we, what our vision actually is for the world. So we need to be in a process of healing or transforming that embodiment. And we need to be organizing and making change in a way that is linked up with the way other people are making change too. We also can't succumb to the sense that we can in an isolated way make the change that we need to do. We need to be connected. And that can look like however you want it to look, but it's relational. Would you say it's sort of like becoming more uh, rooted in self helps us discern a little bit better about the collective? So that we aren't just, we, we can start noticing how we feel and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, that, that we start noticing what doesn't feel right to us, to our own bodies and sense into that level of discernment. So we don't, we can choose what we don't want to participate in. Yeah. Discernment is key, but I would say I, I completely agree with that. And I think it's also for me being in a, in a relationship with myself so that it's, it's yes, understanding the things that I don't like and the things that I do like, but it's also about the process that I'm committed to with myself of listening, of learning, of this thing around discernment is so big for me. Discernment is with me a lot these days. And that's being able to go into your own contradictions, your own confusions, your own beliefs, and, and doing a listening and letting the layers, letting the, the thin distinctions reveal themselves. And to me, that's, that's also relational. I'm, I'm in that kind of relationship through my own practice with myself so that I know myself, but I'm always knowing myself. I'm getting to know myself. And that then allows me uh, to shift my embodiment. It allows me to understand when uh, what I'm doing is not aligned with what I believe or what I, what I want, what I really want to be what I want to be expressing. Yeah, like I think it was some somatic practice that's focus on ease and calm can move us away from being <laughs> in conflict with ourselves inside ourselves yeah. and not being able to sit with the shit that yeah. happens in all of us, that we are contradictory human beings a lot of the time and chasing away that tension and discomfort. I don't think we can come to a a deeper awareness of self with a capital S if yeah. we chase away that discomfort and can't be in that conscious conflictual relationship with self, you know? Yo, that's, that's the number one issue for me is that the, the healing, I haven't been in the, the wellness world very much. I've been mostly doing my work in the, in the more political organizing world, which has its own challenges for real but I'm learning like how much people want to feel calm and peaceful. And I'm like, I've done a lot of healing work. There's a lot of boulders that have moved in me, but um, I still get angry. 
I still am not calm. I still feel confused. I still feel all the feelings. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have processes and commitments to myself to engage with those, but I don't always, I don't, I, I, healing doesn't necessarily make you nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> makes you real. Yeah, yeah. I can only thank people who call me on my shit because I know that they really love me or care That's about right. me. You know? That's right. Um, and again, it, it comes to that relational component of it all. That's right. You posted something four days ago, and I'm like, "That's Prentice. That's what they're all about." What I post? <laughs> oh, about healing makes it so you can fight where you need to. That part. Yes, I love that. And this is what my next question I was going to bring up was: There's so much love in your work, you know. But mm. in that post, um, do you want me to read it out for everybody? <laughs> so you don't have to for me. <laughs> okay, you remember it? Do you want to say it? I think I said healing makes room for you to. Let's see. I don't know. <laughs> Be healing able to fight where it's necessary. Yeah, healing makes room for us to fight in the places where it's necessary, and love in the places we long to. Mm, yeah, that. Yeah. Right. It's not, I think for a long time we've been taught maybe, and maybe this is messages that just came to me, but that fighting wasn't that we should move away from fighting. And I think there are people that probably feel that way. I am not one of them. I think there are places to fight. Mm -hmm. I think there are places now to fight, but I don't think it can be our only move. Because there's also places where I want intimacy and connection. And if I'm bringing that fight, I will lose those opportunities to love, to have love change and transform me. Because love is a, very little can transform you the way love can. I didn't always know that. But there, that is a force to be loved, to be really loved to feel like you can grow in front of another, to grow and to be loved in your new growth is an amazing thing. And it's, uh, if I'm bringing my fight there, I can't do that. I want choice. I want choice more than anything. Choice to me is freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That feels like a good place to <laughs> wrap up. I always ask people what they're listening to these days. Like music? Anything. Podcast, music, nature, whatever it is. Um, let's see. What? What are you going to say? silence. It could be silence, too. I definitely listen to silence every day. Um, I have been listening to... Oh gosh, I hope I'm getting her name right. I think her name's Mary Lattimore. I hope that's right. A harpist. Um, I've been listening to gospel music. Um, 
and yeah sometimes i listen to all the things i listened to some metal a couple days ago uh it really just whatever strikes me the new jasmine sullivan album came out that's a jam um yeah all the things all the things is there anything you're looking forward to over the next few months at all? <laughs> uh, Personally, I mean, there's many things. Before. <laughs> there's a lot of things happening in the world. Um, I'm looking forward on, on a on the large level to understand more of the the depths of the right wing's organization right now. I'm trying to understand what's really going on there and what we need to be attentive to. And personally, I'm looking forward to uh, I actually it's hard to say what I'm looking forward to. I feel so grateful every day like mm-hmm. i i look forward to being with this piece of earth where i live i look forward to the silly things my dogs will do i look forward to um being with my partner every day I look forward to facetiming with my nephew and my whole family mm-hmm. um i look forward to expressing myself and the work and um yeah i'm personally very grateful and full to be honest thank you so much i felt that very deeply hey thank you jay thanks Prentice. Yeah. um if people want to find you i'll put all all of it in the show notes but um your handle on instagram if people don't already know you which i'd be surprised <laughs> Uh, my handle is Prentice.h. That is Prentice with one S. We don't need that extra S and it's not a C-E. So Prentice with one S dot H on Instagram. That's probably the best way to find me. And if, do you have anything upcoming that you want people to know about in particular? Yeah, we've uh, pushed the dates for the Black Embodiment Basics course. It's going to begin in March. Applications will go out at the end of this month, January 2021. And that will be our first course offering for Black folks. And we will be offering an embodiment basics, a multiracial space in the springtime. So you have to look out for the exact dates. But that is coming. And um, the second season of uh, my podcast, Finding Our Way, is going to launch uh, start of February. Amazing. I'll have that all in the show notes so everybody can find it super quick. Thanks for having me on, Jane. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis.